Good morning. It's great to be back here again. I notice a few familiar faces. Uh, for those of you who maybe don't know me or it's your first time here, my name's Mark. Uh, I'm a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church down in Sacramento and uh, just want to let you know that we, you guys are continually in our prayers. Uh, we pray that again God is glorified here, that you're a witness here in Roseville and uh, it's a pleasure um, for Eric to ask me to, to preach here this morning. Uh, <clears throat> for those again that don't know, you probably notice I'm not from here and uh, so I'm from Scotland originally and a lot of you might already know that but for those of you who are new here, um, I'm sure it'll take time to get used to the accent. I'll speak as slow as possible so you can understand everything I'm saying. <clears throat> the first time I was here was about a year ago, just over a year ago, uh, and I had just landed in the USA and had to preach here literally four days after I landed, after I moved over. Um, and if you remember, if some of your memory go far, uh, goes that far back, uh, I preached in Colossians as well. And I actually just wanted to pick up from where I left off there. Um, when I last was here, I preached on Romans, but the very first time I preached in Colossians. And we talked about the preeminence of Christ. We talked about Christ as a, as a person, as God. Um, and we talked about how God, uh, through his word and through uh, the, the letter of Colossians, shows that Christ is truly, fully man and fully God, that Christ is eternal. He was not created, but he is, he is the eternal Son of God, and that's something we're going to take into consideration today uh, as we read our passage. Uh, and so, picking up from where we left off, we're starting in, in verse 19 of chapter 1. It was read uh, earlier, uh, and I'll read it again in a moment, but just a few things. So, where we are in verse 19, just before that, uh, Paul has talked about the preeminence of Christ, how Christ is. Uh, before everything, how all th through Christ all things were made and created, and he upholds the world, uh, the universe, by the word of his power, and things like that. And so after Paul explains who the real Jesus is, uh, he, he has told the Colossian church that Christ isn't only just a man who came to die on a cross, but that he was so much more, that he was and he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And without Christ, this universe, this world would fall apart. And that's what Paul talked about in the previous verses. You can read that at your ledger. That's what I spoke about just over a year ago when we were talking about that. And what I want to pick up is where we are today. This creation that Christ upholds with the word of his power, there's a problem with it. And the problem is, is that God wouldn't call it good anymore. In Genesis, God calls everything good. He created it and it was good. But the problem is, it's no longer what God described it to be in Genesis 1. And most of us will know that that is because of sin. Sin entered the creation, it entered the human race. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, when they were created, they were created in perfection. They were placed in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin, there was no death present. It was only themselves and God. They had perfect fellowship a perfect relationship with God. Creation was in a state of what the Bible calls shalom. It was in a state of peace. Creation was peaceful. Can you just imagine that? No sin, no death, just humanity and God in perfect relationship. Yet, the amazing thing is, and it's a sad thing, that despite the perfect conditions that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, they still managed to disobey God. They believed the serpent's lie. They fell into sin, commonly known as the fall. And humanity all of a sudden went spiraling out of control. Humanity can have the most perfect conditions for fellowship with God and still sin. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That is the depravity of the human heart. And we need to be real about that. We think we may be good, but the thing is, you could have perfect conditions in the Garden of Eden and your heart could still lean you away from God. just takes one lie from the, from the devil, from the serpent, and it all went terribly wrong. The creation was no longer good, but it had fallen into sin. And so part of that fall was that humanity had been deprived of its relationship 
with God. Sin had entered the world because God, uh, and because God is holy and just, he couldn't, he couldn't just leave it the way it is. Because sin had came into his creation, and God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he had to excommunicate Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He had to do that because he is so holy and so just. They could no longer enjoy that perfect fellowship with God because of their sin. But because God is merciful and he's a loving God, he put a plan of redemption into motion. Mankind needed a way back to God to restore fellowship with him. You see, Adam and Eve had wronged God. God God was not to blame. God's hands were clean. It was us, Adam and Eve, our human parents. They were the ones in the wrong. And so when we're going to talk about reconciliation today, I want you to remember that it's not God being reconciled to us. It's us being reconciled to God. God is perfectly just, perfectly holy. He has done no wrong. We are the ones that have wronged him. We are the ones that need to be reconciled back to God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, I'm sure a lot of you have read your Old Testament. Throughout that, you see that God prefigured a way that redemption and reconciliation could be accomplished. Throughout the Old Testament, God institutes sacrifices to show that blood is needed to be shed to cover the sins of people to cover the sins of humanity and we notice that throughout the old testament it just continues and it's like an endless cycle send give a sacrifice shed the blood of the of the animal give it to the high priest and then it restarts again the people sin sacrifice forgiveness sin sacrifice forgiveness and it just it looks like an endless cycle on and on and on and it would be an endless cycle unless god had stepped into human history to sort it out. These sacrifices were meant to point to something greater. They were pointing to the hope of a day when a perfect sacrifice would be made once and for all to forgive humanity of all its sins. The whole point of those sacrifices was God saying, look forward. Don't look to the priest. The priest is imperfect. Look forward to the day to my promised Messiah who will come and make this all go away, who will clean you of all your sins permanently, that you will not have to keep coming to the temple to keep sacrificing animals. There will be a way for you to get right with God, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to do it. And it, it took time. It took thousands of years, but God made a way. Now, let me just read again. I know we read it, but I just want to read one more time Colossians 1, verses 19 to 23, just to jog our memories. So just follow along with me. Verse 19. And he, this is Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. Sorry, that's verse 18. Verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. And so I propose to you this morning is that because we have been reconciled through Christ, reconciled back to God, I urge you and I just want to exhort you to continue and to persevere in the faith. Know that you are reconciled and because you are reconciled to God, you can continue, you can persevere in the faith. And that's what I want to urge you this morning. You see, when sin entered creation, it didn't just affect man standing with God, but it affected the whole creation. It affected the whole universe. 
Death was introduced to this once perfect world. Plants, trees, animals started to die, not just humans. Sin's effect expanded to more than just humanity, but to creation itself. And this is how serious damaging and sin is. If you want to know how damaging sin is, know that this world, that nature, the way it is, natural disasters, life cycle of things dying, that is because of sin. And we don't think about that sometimes. We just think, oh, sin affects our human hearts. We disobey God. Well, actually, things like natural disasters, things that, that go wrong in the world are also caused by sin. Sin affected the whole universe. The reason things die is because of sin. Garden of Eden, nothing was, nothing was killed. Nothing, nothing died in that perfect relationship. It was only after the fall that things started to die. That Adam and Eve had to work and sweat just to get by in their life. And so the whole creation, not just humanity, needs to be reconciled back to God. Romans 8 talks about how creation groans and longs to be restored. And so God had a plan to restore all things to himself, not just us. Of course, we are, are very important in God's eyes. He, we are created in his image, absolutely. But God's plan of redemption and reconciliation doesn't apply just to us, but it applies to the whole world, the whole universe. Everything will be made new. That's why God says there will be a new heavens and a new earth because everything needs renewed. Not just us, not just our new glorified bodies that we will have, but there will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. And the reason there's a new heaven and a new earth is because the old one, the old one's broken and it needs to be renewed. But what we're going to focus on this morning is humanity's restoration and how we should respond to it. I just wanted to point out that re reconciliation and re restoration does come into effect of the whole creation, the whole world. I just wanted to make sure you understand how serious sin is. But I want to focus on humanity's restoration this morning and how we should respond knowing that we are reconciled to God. You see, God is just and God is righteous. And unless he came up with a plan for humanity, for humanity to be excused of its sin, then all of us would be heading to hell. That is the biblical truth. Not because God is cruel, but because God is just. We have sinned against a perfectly holy and infinite God. Rebellion against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment for the crime. Infinite God equals an infinite punishment because we have sinned against an infinite God. And so God is in his right to punish humans for how they've acted against him. Yet in his love and in his mercy, God wants to display his glory, not just through his wrath, not through sending sinners just to hell, but he wants to display his glory through his mercy as well, through his love, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God desires all men to be saved. The Bible says that. But we know that not all men will be saved. And God's glory is seen not just in his mercy, but in his wrath as well. And so, because a crime has been committed against God, he needed to give out a punishment that fit the crime. And that's because God is just. God would not be perfectly just if he just swept our sin under the carpet because it's went unanswered. You imagine going to our courthouse and a murderer stands trial and the judge just sweeps it under the carpet. There's no justice there. And it's the same when it comes to our sin in God's courtroom. He can't just put it under the carpet. There needs to be a reprimand. There needs to be a payment. There needs to be a sentence. And so God can't contradict his justice because then he wouldn't be perfect. He can't contradict himself. He's perfectly loving, perfectly holy, but also perfectly just. And so because of that, God knew that there had to be a way to reconcile man to God, but in a way in which his justice and righteousness are not compromised. And the only way that God could do that was to send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to reconcile us back to God. After thousands of years of sins and sacrifices, as we see throughout the Old Testament, God had finally provided the much-needed Lamb of God when Christ came into the world. 
We just celebrated Christmas. We just thought about and meditated upon the birth of Christ. And we need to remember the reason that he came. I know this is Christianity 101, but we can never be reminded enough of why he came into this world. He came into this world to save us, to be that perfect, infinite sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That once Christ came, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests were no longer needed. The veil was cut in two. We have access to the holy of holies. We can come before God in prayer on our knees and access his throne room only because that child was born in Bethlehem. And so because Jesus is God, and verse 19 makes that abundantly clear, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, because Christ is God, he is part of that trinity, he is infinite. We've seen that he was there before creation, that creation was created through him, that he is eternal, that Jesus was perfectly holy, he lived without committing a sin in action or in thought. Imagine that. Without sin, action or in thought. We might go a day without doing something bad physically, but how much wrong goes on in our mind? Yet Christ had perfection inside and out. And that meant he was the only one suitable, the only one that qualified to be that perfect sacrifice, that eternal sacrifice that could cover the sins of humanity. He was the person that the spotless, unblemished lambs had pointed to. And so the eternal, blameless, innocent Son of God took the eternal punishment of humanity upon himself so that perfect justice could be done. Jesus is eternal. There was an eternal price to be paid. And so eternity and eternity cancel out each other. God canceled out that eternal debt that we owed. We are all infinite. No normal human being could have sacrificed himself and cover the sins, the infinite sins of the world. Only Christ in his eternity, in his eternality, in his perfection qualified to be that spotless lamb on the cross to cover the sins of the people. And so in this transaction, peace was made between us, the hostiles, and God, the one who had been wronged. Not only were we forgiven of all the sins we have committed and will ever commit. Remember, your sins are forgiven not just in the past, but in the future as well. Any sins you ever commit will be forgiven. But not only were we forgiven... But God then planted his Holy Spirit in our hearts to guide us in the ways of righteousness. And in having that Holy Spirit as a, as a seal, having him as a seal in our hearts, also gives us Christ's perfection. And I'll touch on that later. But we are also given Christ's perfect record upon our hearts that covers us. That means we can come to God and ask him for forgiveness of sins, that we can pray and petition to God only because the righteousness of Christ is now ours. And that's the glorious truth of the gospel. Not only are we forgiven, but God then blesses us with the spirit of God in our hearts so that we can tell what is right and wrong, that we can identify sin. And so knowing and understanding this great truth should encourage us to listen to God and to obey his commands. Yet despite God's goodness to us and reconciling us back to him through Christ, what happens? We waver, we sin, we disobey, we do exactly what Adam and Eve is. We might joke sometimes and, and go back and say, I wish I could just see Adam and Eve and tell them, why did you do this? But in your heart, you would have done the same thing. We all would have done the same thing because that is just the nature of the human heart. There is sin there. And despite knowing that God has reconciled us back to Christ, back to himself, 
even though we know that, and even though we believe that as Christians, we still waver. We still disobey God. We still, at times, think we know better than God. We're all, we're all guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. Your pastor's guilty of that. We all are, because that's the nature of the sinful human heart. And in understanding what we have been forgiven of, and understanding God's mercy towards us, we should realize just how good and loving and patient God is with us when we falter. He wants what's best for us. And so we should see it a joy to listen, to obey God. Paul encourages the Colossians here and us today to continue in the faith, to persevere in the righteousness of God. That in light of this truth of reconciliation, we are to obey God. And so if you're jotting down notes today, there's just two major points. And I want to give you the first one is that we are told to continue in the faith so that we, are be, so that we would be holy and blameless. Continue in the faith being holy and blameless. This is what Paul puts out in verses 21 and 22. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that was us at one point, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before we had put our faith in Jesus, we were in a state of rebellion against God. We were, as Paul puts it, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. We had no inclination to obey God. We couldn't even see him due to the darkness of our hearts. Verse 13 in Colossians 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has taken us out of the darkness of our sinfulness, out of the darkness of the world under the influences of Satan, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of light, into Christ's kingdom, free from sin. We're, sin is still present, but we're free from being slaves to it, and we can now become slaves to Christ. That's what God has done. And so before if you're in here this morning and you're a Christian, before you trusted in God, you were hostile. You couldn't even see your sin that you had been covered that much in it. Everything we did was sinful, even if we thought we were doing it for good. Everything you did before knowing Christ, you did it for yourself. Without, you might say to yourself, oh, no, I did it for them, I did it for my friend, but at the very bottom of your heart, you did it to make yourself feel better. You did it for yourself. You may have done good deeds. You may have helped other people. You may have gave to charity. But you were doing those things because deep down it made you feel better. Okay, you wanted to help that person or that organization out. But deep down it gave you some sort of satisfaction that you were doing something right. But the problem is, when you weren't a Christian, when you weren't trusting in Christ, you weren't doing it to glorify God. And anything that you do that does not glorify God is sin. God makes that clear in his word. Of course, everything we do, we should be honoring God with our lives, with our speech, with our thoughts. But in our hostility towards God before we had trusted in Christ, all of it displeased God. We were heading to hell one way or another. So remember that we were created to glorify and worship God. The whole point that God created Adam and Eve and created humanity was to reflect himself back to himself, but also that we would glorify God and that we would worship God for who he is. And then in our hostility, in our sinfulness, we then broke that image. We then broke that mold. We were no longer doing what we were created to do. We rebelled against the creator. You see, doing things for yourself, making yourself feel better, was a form of idolatry. God cares about the motives of our works. And so before we even knew Jesus, we were permanently in a state of hostility to God. And everything was evil in his sight because it did not glorify him. 
But when Christ died on the cross, something great happened. God created a way to change us from being hostile in mind and, and from doing evil deeds to glorifying him with our thoughts and actions. God made peace between us and him possible. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, God makes us holy and blameless. In other words, we are justified before God. This is the only this is only possible through the divine action of imputation. I want to just talk about imputation for a moment. Remember, we were hostile to God. We trusted in Christ. And the only reason we trusted in Christ is because God regenerated our hearts in the first place. And once our hearts were renewed, the heart of stone was removed and the heart of flesh and God's law was written on our hearts, we believed in Christ. And all of a sudden, all the things that we were thinking and doing we were able to start to filter out, okay, that is sin, that is good, that pleases God, this doesn't. And we were slowly but surely able to filter out what is good and what is bad. God is the only point of morality. He's the only truth in this world. And that's why this world has such a major mess in it because some people say this is good, but then some people say this is good. But God is the standard. God tells us what is right and what is wrong. Why? What gives him that authority? Because he created us. He created this universe. He says what is right and what is wrong. End of. And so that's what we need to remember is that we can now see clearly what is right and what is wrong. And that's amazing that from being covered in darkness and covered in sin and so enthralled in our sin that we can't even see it to all of a sudden being transferred into this kingdom of light where our eyes are open spiritually and we can now see, wow, that was wrong. That needs to get out of my life. I need to start doing this to please God. That is a miracle that only happened because Christ died on the cross, paid the debt, and God sent his spirit into your heart. And so in doing that, God imputed righteousness to us. So that's how we are holy and blameless. When Christ lived on earth, he lived a perfect life as we talked about. Everything he did was perfect. It was out of a pure motive and it was out of complete obedience to the Father. Not one single thought or action in Jesus' life was sinful. He was tempted and he was tempted beyond a lot of what we were tempted even now. But yet he did not sin once. He was the only acceptable sacrifice, as I said before. And so this perfect record is imputed, meaning it's been added to our account when we trust in Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, that perfect record, that perfect life that Christ lived, it then gets imputed, it gets added to our record. That's how God sees it. And so when God looks at a faithful believer, when God looks at a Christian, he no longer sees the sin. He no longer sees the imperfect record. He sees the righteousness and the perfect record of Christ. And that is a great thing. That is something to be joyous about. That is something to praise God for. Because without Christ dying on that cross, you would not have that record. So that's what imputation means. Imputation means being added to our account. That righteousness is added to us. And because we have that perfect record, we are now able to have access to God. And this is how we can have a personal relationship with God because he sees us as perfect. Jesus died in order to present us holy and blameless. Jesus knew his perfect obedience and willingness to go to the cross was the only way to give us a perfect record. It was the only way to justify us. It was the only way we could enjoy fellowship with God once again. Such is the love of Christ, that he would give himself up for the sinful fallen creatures that actually put him up on the cross in the first place. And that's something we always need to remember, that Christ was perfectly innocent, he didn't have to come down into this world, but God knew that the only way we could be saved from our sins is if that he entered the world and intervened. And he did through Christ. 
and he lived perfectly. He was blameless. He did not sin. Yet somehow he still ended up going to a Roman cross, being killed by the people he came to save. Now, that sovereignly was in God's plan from the start. Absolutely. But the fact that the actions of how that played out just shows the sinfulness of the human heart. And I think God allowed that to happen for a reason, that we read it in the scriptures, that we can see, first of all, the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the patience of God, but also the sinfulness of human man, that this man, this God, who wanted to save them, who wanted to save humanity, was actually killed by the humanity that he came to save. And that just shows the wretchedness of the human heart. And so don't think, you might think you're a reasonably good person, but the only reason you do not fall off the deep end is because God is holding you there. God is sustaining you by his word, by his spirit through the church. That is the only way that you are still here living a life that is pleasing to God. If God took his spirit out of you, and if God ever abandoned you, and he never, he promised he'll never abandon his people, but if he did, we would be back into our sinfulness just like that. We would be back to sinning, back to displeasing God, and goodness knows what the rest of our lives would look like. And so I want you to know, I want to give you just a source of application here, that because we have this perfection, because Christ has presented us as holy and blameless, that you're justified in God's sight, that when you sin, and when you sin, you don't feel like you can approach God. You might feel shame. You might feel guilt that your sin is just too much to bear, that you can't come before God. If you feel guilt and shame because of your sin, that is a good thing. Because that means the Spirit of God has convicted you and said, you know what? That's wrong. That's, that's a sin. That's displeasing to God. That grieves the Spirit. And so when that happens, that's the Spirit prompting you to confess your sin before God. And know that you can confess your, confess your sin before God and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because Christ has already paid your penalty. You can come before the Father and ask for forgiveness. You see, if you are too afraid to go before God because you feel so much shame for your sin, then you don't truly understand what Christ has accomplished for you. If you feel the weight of your sin and you feel so guilty, you're like, there's no way I can go before God and confess this to him and ask him for forgiveness. First of all, he knows you've already done it. You might think to yourself, I just can't confess this to God. God already knows. <laughs> he already knows what you've done. And so there's no point in hide, trying to hide it. It's like God, Adam and Eve trying to hide in the garden. God still found them. It was God's garden in the first place. And so that's the same thing with our sin. Know that you can go before God. One, because God already knows. But two, God says that if you, for, if you ask for forgiveness, if you confess your sins, then he is just and faithful to forgive. If you don't go and confess your sin, you're actually just sinning more because God commands us to confess our sins, to clear our consciences, to ask him for forgiveness and to restore fellowship. Confessing our sin is, is asking God for forgiveness, saying, God, forgive me for this sin. I truly know that it is wrong. Please can fellowship be restored? Because when we sin, you know, it, it, it displeases God. And so confessing that sin and asking God for forgiveness kind of clears that path again to moving on with your life and, and leaving it behind. Now, true repentance isn't just confessing your sins, remember. You've actually got to physically turn away from the sin and turn to Christ. You can confess a million times, but if you keep doing that same sin, then you have not truly repented. And so God asks us to come before him to confess our sins and know that you can do that because you have Christ's perfect record. You can boldly go before the Father and ask for forgiveness. Think about it this way. When you go before God, you have the perfection of Christ. God doesn't see that sin. He sees your sin. He knows when you have sinned. 
But that, that, that record is not imperfect. He sees the perfect record of Christ there. And so when you come before him, know boldly but humbly come before him. Say, God, I have sinned against you. I ask for forgiveness. I know I am covered by the blood of Christ. I know he has paid that penalty. Help me to not take that for granted. Ask for forgiveness. Help, have help truly repenting of it. And that might be through your church, through your pastors, truly getting rid of a sin out of your life. But actively doing that, you're only able to do that because you have the spirit of God within you. And so that's something you need to, first of all, praise God for but know that he will forgive you if you confess. If you humbly and truly confess, if your motives are pure, he will forgive you of that sin and he, you will be able to move on. You can't just give God lip service. He knows when you're telling the truth and when you're not. And so just remember, just to, again, continue to confess our sins before God. We are reconciled and we are holy and blameless. God has made us holy and blameless before himself. My second main point I want to make if you're taking notes is that continue in the faith by being stable and steadfast. Continue in the faith by being stable and steadfast. Verse 23 says this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Remember the context that Paul is writing in. He's writing to the Colossians. There's been false teachers who have been proclaiming a false gospel. There are, these are these people who would confess themselves as super spiritual people. There's people in Colossae that are saying, we can give you salvation. We can show you if you just do this and this, if you do what I say, you will receive salvation. That's the, that's the kind of heresy that was going on in Colossae. They were saying that they could decide who enters God's kingdom. But Paul is saying to remember that the true gospel, remember what Paul had taught them, remember what Paul has wrote, written in the scriptures. We are to remember the true gospel. And in that world, back in that first century, their heresy and their battle was against these super spiritual people who said they decided to go into God's kingdom, that you'd have to be circumcised to become a Christian, all those sorts of things. That's not necessarily our battle today. We have another battlefield today. So remember the hope of the gospel. Salvation is in Christ alone, not through any other person. Paul saying is that this, this is a true gospel. And it's been proclaimed in all creation. Paul had proclaimed this to the, to the known world at the time. The majority of the Roman Empire had heard the gospel either through Paul or through one of the other apostles or disciples of Christ. This gospel, the true gospel in which Paul proclaimed, was rooted in faith and in hope. Verse 5 of, of Colossians 1 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. There is a hope in our gospel. And so Paul is calling the Colossians to persevere, and he's calling us to persevere. Not to be moved by any false gospel or false teaching, but to remember the true gospel, the, go the gospel that Christ came and taught the gospel that the apostles taught. He encourages the Colossians to remember the hope of Christ that he has reconciled them to himself so that they can enter God's kingdom and enjoy him forever. They didn't need to listen to these false teachers. They didn't have to follow this person or that person to get to heaven. Paul was reminding them that you have been reconciled to God through Christ and Christ alone, and he is your key to heaven. He is your key to eternity, to everlasting life. Not these fallible human beings, but the one perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is a hope that God gives that would hopefully strengthen the Colossians to persevere. He says 
uh, in verse 11 here in Colossians 1 as well, I'm just going back just to remind you, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. God strengthens us to persevere. And Paul was exhorting the Colossians to hold off, to brush off that old false teaching and to remember the true gospel, to remember that Christ can strengthen them, that God will give them the strength to endure what has happened to them, to endure this false teaching. And so in terms of today's world, how does this apply to us? Well, let's think about it. We don't have necessarily, we have false teachers. We have prosperity gospel amongst other things. But one of the major things, that at least the Western world, us here in, in the US and, and back in the UK, where I'm from as well, the way we can think about this is that the increasing secularism, the increasing materialism, means that people are actually being told, not that there's a God, but that there's no God at all. And we know that. We see that in the world today. That there's no God, that we are just a bunch of atoms that somehow came together that there's not actually any hope for anyone, that we're just to live our lives, do our best, pass away, and we just keep going and going and going. That we can just, you can see how this turns into people chase money, chase fame, because they think this is the only life they have. And what do they do? They, they amass material wealth, they amass reputation and fame, and then they die. They can't take it with them. And that's, that's the shallowness and that's the sadness of the world's teaching today. And so leading on from this sort of teaching, what else happens? Not just, okay, there's no God. Let's just be secular. Let's just live our lives and die and, you know, listen to the morality of the world leaders because, you know, they're perfect in every way. See, see, yeah, you see what I mean? It's just, that's how it works. And, and that's the sad thing about this world. That's the sad thing about not having Christ or not, not knowing that God exists because there's no perfect morality to which you can live off of. It's fluid, amongst other things that California thinks as well. <laughs> Leading on from this sort of teaching, not just to secularism and materialism, but leading on from this, we, we get people saying, follow your heart's desire. Just be your best person. Follow your heart. That'll, that'll make you the best person you can possibly be. Let me tell you what God says about the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 21, 22. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I could be here all day. And so this, this is the sadness of today's world is that we need to remember the true gospel. We need to remember and be rooted in the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, what God has laid out in his word. Because we just see, if we go this world with there's no God at all, well, where's our morality? Where do we get morality from? Or follow your heart's desire. Well, it's clearly what's going to happen if we follow our heart's desires. God makes absolutely clear what's going to happen to us. And so remembering the hope of the gospel will help us to be stable and steadfast. What he talks about, yes, it says we can be stable and steadfast in the faith. How do we be stable and steadfast? By remembering the hope and the truth of the gospel. Don't believe the lie that the world says that this is all there is. Don't let these teachings affect you. I exhort you that Jesus promises that he will renew all things. That there is a better world to come. That there is eternal life after death. That once you leave this life, you're going to one of two places. And so I urge you to remember the hope of the gospel. To not, not be discouraged in your workplaces or in your schools. When people talk smack about the Christian faith. When people put you down for believing in God and make fun of you. Just remember 
there's a better world to come. God urges you, Paul urges you through this book in Colossians to just persevere. Remember the hope of this gospel, the hope of a new world to come and that God has promised to be with us. Christ has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And so because we have that hope of the gospel, not only have we been reconciled uh, to, to fight that, but also to fight sin. We're reconciled to fight sin in our lives. So not only are we fighting against the world, but we're fighting within ourselves to do the right thing because there's still that tension until we are renewed. There's still that sinful, we're still having to deal with the presence of sin, but we're not enslaved to it. And so God reconciled us to help us fight sin. Part of being stable and steadfast means that we fight sin. When the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, and when we put our faith in Christ, our heart's inclination changes from sin to obedience. Not perfectly, but it starts. It starts the process of sanctification. The process of becoming more like Christ. The process of becoming more like God every day. And so we still sin, and, and because we live in a fallen world and we live in fallen bodies, we will still sin. But we can act upon temptations that we have to help prevent sin. We can start to glorify God with our, th with our thoughts and with our actions. And that fellowship that was lost in the Garden of Eden has been restored to an extent. It's not been fully restored, but it's been restored to an extent. We're no longer completely under sin. We're now given new hearts. We're now given the spirit within us. And we slowly but surely are sanctified bit by bit until that day that Christ returns where that full fellowship will be 100% restored where we will be with God and we will get to enjoy him forever. And so I just urge you to continue to fight sin not by your own strength but by the strength that God gives you. By remembering what the word says. Remembering to uh, come in prayer and petitions to God. We're not able to do it ourselves. God has given us the means of grace. He's given us the church. He's given us the Lord's Supper. He's given us baptism. He's given us all these things, other Christians to disciple and to have fellowship with, to have accountability, to deal with sins. God has given us access to all these things so that we, when we are tempted by sin, we can then start to think, wait, this is a sin. I'm being tempted by it. My flesh wants to do it, but I know that it doesn't please God. The fact that you're starting to have that tug of war shows that the Spirit is working in you. Because if you weren't a Christian, you'd just go dive head first into the sin. But because we have the Spirit of God within us, we actually have that tug of war. So I ask you and I urge you not to be discouraged when you're tempted. The fact that you feel that strain of my flesh wants to do this, but I really don't because I know it pleases God. Having that tug of war, that is a good sign. That is an encouraging sign that the Spirit is working in you. Now, you might need help to, to get out of that temptation, to, to conquer that temptation, but the fact you have that tug of war, that is a good sign. And I urge you to just to continue in fellowship and, and accountability with, with people in the church, through prayer, through the word, having that together helps you conquer and fight the sin that is in your life. And so when we fight sin, what does that also mean? Because we're reconciled, we fight sin. And if we fight sin, what happens? We produce fruit. We produce fruit. Fighting sin means we start to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Remember I was talking about that tug of war? That's a fruit showing that you're, you're wanting to get away from it. That's the fruit of the Spirit starting to work in your life. In verses 22 and 23 here in our passage, it says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Notice that word, if indeed you continue in the faith. That if doesn't mean that only if you remain stable and steadfast, you'll get into God's kingdom. Because then you start to go down the slippery road of works-based righteousness doesn't mean if you do these things, you will be saved. If you do things, no. Because Romans 3.28 says, 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. So we know that faith and justification comes. Uh, there's, the works doesn't make us Christians. It's faith in Christ that makes us a Christian. Being stable and steadfast is a sign of your faith. Being stable, being steadfast, persevering in the faith is a sign that God is working in you. Remember, if we go back to verses 10 and 11 in this, in this verse, in this uh, chapter, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It is God that strengthens us, that helps us to bear fruit, that helps us to fight sin. It's not our own doing. So that what, what he's saying here, what Paul is saying to the Colossians here, to the true Christians who are there, he's saying that to those who believe the true gospel, they will, by the power of God, remain stable and steadfast, and they will be able to withstand the false teachers. Paul knew that a true faith is an abiding faith. That it will endure to the end. And, and the scriptures are clear. True faith will last to the end. We may waver. We have our ups and downs. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor. Or a member of the church. We all have our ups and downs. Our faith wavers at time. But the fact is your faith is still there. We will never. If you never lose that faith. That faith is true. That faith is an abiding faith. And Paul knows that the Colossians may have some trials ahead. With this heretical teaching. And we may have trials ahead with the secular world. But at the end of the day, if we persevere, we get to the end of our life. That is a true faith. And God says he will strengthen us with all power according to his glorious might. God will give you the strength and the energy to fight the good fight, to run the race until the end of your days. And oh, what a glorious truth that is. God gives us the strength, not us. We don't have any strength of our own. God gives us the grace. He gives us the mercy. He may test us at times, but that is only because he wants your faith to strengthen. And so, because Jesus has already reconciled us to himself, we have that power to remain faithful in the pressures of today's world. Remaining faithful and remembering the true gospel will cause God to work in us and to produce fruit, to fight sin. We must always go back to the word to remind ourselves of the true gospel. Because we're prone to sin, and if Adam and Eve managed to sin in a perfect creation, then we're definitely going to sin in this fallen world. And so how do we persevere? We persevere through prayer, through the church, Ultimately, through the word as well. Yes, you might, hear, you might hear a sermon maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. But what, who do you have access to 24-7, 365? You can pray to God and you have the word of God. And God has declared that sufficient for us to live lives that are pleasing to him. And if God declares that sufficient, then who are we to add or take away from it? So I just urge you, I just urge you that to, to display fruit, to help fight sin, to remember the true gospel. We, we leak, we, we forget things. I couldn't tell you the sermon we had last week at IBC. I could tell you some things, but I couldn't remember the whole thing. And that's why we need to be reminded constantly. And we are, only if we're reminded constantly will we slowly but surely become more sanctified. But also we will start to sin less and less. We will start to be able to see uh, patterns in our life. That, first of all, we'll get rid of sin but we may be able to actually see more sin. Things might become more apparent as we read God's word. The spirit might convict us and say, Mark, you're, that's a sin. You've been doing this for all this time you did, and this is a sin. And then that's something else you have to deal with. But that pleases God and it makes you more like Christ day by day. And so just remember, it's vital that we meditate and think upon this truth that we have been reconciled back to God. That we will remember that Jesus died so that we could be holy and blameless and above reproach, as Paul puts it. Jesus died so that we would be justified. And knowing these things should encourage us 
to denounce sin and to produce good works. And so just to finish off, let's just remember, let's just kind of summarize. Before we knew God, we were slaves to sin. We were hostile. We were evil in God's sight. We did evil deeds. We did things for ourselves. Yet he provided a way for us to be reconciled back to him. And that was the greatest act of mercy, love, and grace. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth to live a perfect, innocent life, only to be crucified by the very people he came to save. He came, this is the greatest act of love, that he took the punishment of the sinners upon himself so that we could be brought back to God in perfect relationship. And so believing this great truth should encourage us to continue in the faith. And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, I urge you to come to Christ before it is too late. I urge you to think upon what I've told you this morning, that at this moment, if you have not put your full faith in Christ, you are hostile towards God. It doesn't matter what notions you have of God or a greater being. There is one God, and he has made one way back to him, and that is through Christ. So I urge you to think about what will happen if you were to die tomorrow. Where would you be? Where would you want to be? God provides a way. Come before him. Ask for forgiveness of your sins. He will forgive you if you sincerely are sorry for your sin. He will forgive you. And so because, dear Christians, that we have been reconciled, I just urge you, to continue in the faith here up in Roseville at this church, that in your workplaces, in your schools, in your homes, I just urge you to remember that you are reconciled, that you can come to God with anything, with any sin, with any problem, with any life trial, and he will hear you. He will forgive you. And so I urge you just to stay strong and to persevere in the faith, for this is the calling that Christ has, has called us to. And we have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Not that we may blo uh, gloat about it. Not that we may boast. For our boasting is only in Christ because it's his righteousness in the first place. Let's pray together. Father, we want to come before you and just think upon this truth of reconciliation this truth that you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord, that through Christ, our sins can be forgiven. That before we knew you, Lord, before we knew you, we were doing evil deeds. Lord, we were alienated. Lord, we just, we can't even think upon how evil we were before we knew you. And yet in your love and in your mercy, you came into this world, you came to the cross. You sent your son to die in our place that we may be forgiven, that we may be changed into your likeness. Oh Lord, that sinners like us will be made like Christ. What a miracle that is. Father, we know that this world fights against you, that it is under the influence of the devil that's under the influence of sin and that we are called to be the light in the darkness. Oh Lord, we pray that here at our Veritas Church in our local communities here in Roseville and the surrounding areas, we ask Lord that you would help us to be a light. We ask Lord that we would not be dismayed when people make fun of our faith or slander you Lord. We know that you see all these things. We know that true justice will be done. We just ask, Lord, that you would help us to persevere. Help us, Lord, to, to be the Christians that you call us to be. To be faithful. To be strengthened by you, Lord. And Father, we come before you praying that if there is anyone here today that has not put their faith in Christ, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they turn from their sins and turn to Christ out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, that they may inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, that their moral compass may be set on you and you alone. 
Help us this day, Lord, this week, to meditate upon the truth of reconciliation. Just to wonder, to be in awe of the goodness of God. That we have been adopted into your family. That your spirit has been put within us. That Christ's righteousness is added to ours. It's added to our account, Lord, for we have no righteousness of our own. Oh, Lord, help us this day and this week to glorify you, to worship you. All, Lord, that all glory and all honor may be yours. Help us to worship you and to live our lives before you as you created us originally, Lord. Being a reflection of your image, worshiping you and pleasing you. Be with us this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.